with Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. We have so far in the series been accenting how God has made us like him. He's relational, we're relational. He's a spirit, we're spiritual. He's a worker, we're workers. But tonight we're going to shift a little bit and look at key ways we're not like God. By design. And so tonight we'll, we'll talk about uh, being merely human. Made in God's image, but not God. And so we'll talk about our limitations. God-given limitations that aren't glitches to be overcome, but are gifts to be embraced. So before we uh, get into that and the passage that Anna read, let's pray together. We'll take a look at this. Lord Jesus, every week uh, we pray to you before we open our Bibles and hear from you because what we're going to find out about ourselves from this passage is true. We are weak. We are limited. We are finite. We have tiny little minds and a lot of noise inside of us. And we are not like you, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-loving, righteous, and pure. And so I pray that you would use your power tonight to get through to us. In love, you would speak clearly to us. And in doing so, let us see you as you are. When we do, we will worship. When we do, we will come to you. When we do, we will love you and know that we're loved by you. We ask this in your name. Amen. A few years ago, there was a really fascinating study that I came across. This is not my field of interest, but it was uh, in landscape architecture. They, there's these researchers who had done a study on the psychological effects that playground design has on children. And particularly, they were curious, what effect does a fence that's around a playground have on the kids who play on that play playground? And before I tell you what the study was like and what it found, the reason that they were curious to do this study is because there was and is a conventional wisdom out there, and it goes like this. It's going to sound familiar to you. But basically, uh, the conventional wisdom is that fences limit freedom, and they squash play and social development. They're too controlling. Tear down the fences. That's the conventional thinking. So they were like, I mean, we've always heard that, but I wonder if that's true. So they developed a study, and um, they basically, in, a, in, a, in the same city, in the same urban area, they found some pretty identical playgrounds, and half of them had fences around the playground equipment, and the other half did not. So then they coordinate with some of the preschools in the area, and they basically divide up those preschool students so that half of them are doing their recess on playgrounds that are surrounded by a fence, and then the other half at playgrounds that have no fence. And then every day they go out there and they just observe during recess the children and the teachers. What's their behavior? And what trends do we notice? So here's what they found. 
on the playground that had no fences. It was just a park. There's no fences around, and all the kids are just playing there on the playground. On those playgrounds with no fences, they observed pretty conclusively that the children tended to kind of linger close to the teachers. They never really got out there and explored all of the playground equipment. They never really ran out and kind of used the space. They stayed by the teacher. And they weren't studying the teachers, but they noticed the teachers were way more risk averse or less risk tolerant than in the other group because the teachers were like, Annie, get back. Timmy, you're running too far away. Get back. Just constantly picking on the kids. However, the children, the preschoolers who played on the playground that were surrounded by fences, very different behavior. The second they got into the fence and the playground, they all scatter and run and they're using all the equipment and all the space and immediately starting to play and imagine and all the things kids do. And they noticed with the teachers too, the teachers weren't nitpicking the kids, the teachers were hanging out talking to each other. So what does it prove? What did, they, what did they conclude from the study? Obviously, the conventional wisdom that fences limit freedom is wrong, at least in a playground setting. Fences didn't limit freedom at all. Fences unlocked freedom. They unleashed freedom. Because they provided a safe environment for things like play and imagination and risk to happen. The playgrounds with no fences was like the Wild West. And the kids were anxious and scared, and they didn't want to take chances. The kids here were the opposite. So fences, it turns out, at least with playgrounds, unleash freedom because they provide a safe place for it to happen. Now, what's a study about playgrounds have to do with any of us? Because at least until you have kids, you're probably not going to be on another one for a long time. Well, here's the connection to the grown-up world. Maybe already you're starting to make connections with this conventional wisdom that's not just out there applying to playgrounds. It, we hear it all the time. It's in the air we breathe. We've been raised on it, you and I both. This idea that, that, the, that limitations, that fences, keep you down and hold you back. They're not letting you reach your full potential. The way to reach your full potential is to overcome any obstacles, any glitches, any fences, any limitations. You've got to tear fences down to truly realize your freedom. Does that sound familiar? Maybe I'm not saying it in the exact phrases you've heard, but that's kind of that's the dream that we've all been raised in. And um, let, me, let me caveat this. This is going to make sense in just a second, but let me just say this. There's plenty of bad barriers that should be overcome. Some of you, maybe you have dyslexia and you've worked tooth and nail your whole life to overcome that, and that's great. Social anxiety, you're pushing through it, you're overcoming it. Oppression, terrible obstacles, terrible barriers, good to push through and overcome them. But what if our God-given limitations are the very things that you're feeling, this is holding me back. I can't be me. I can't live. I can't have the kind of life I think I need to have with these creaturely limitations we're going to flesh out in a minute. They're holding me back. They're holding me down. That's what I'm talking about.
And we feel it in a lot of different areas of our lives. For example, where do we feel like we're being held back or held down? Uh, it's thwarting our potential or our growth or our progress. Um, we feel the pinch with time. Is there a person in the room who doesn't want an extra hour of the day or an extra day of the week to get more done? If I just had a little more time, or maybe you beat yourself up a lot, if I just studied a little harder or started a little earlier, we, we, we're not okay with the limitation on our time, but there's nothing we can do, even all the time hacks, to get a 25th hour, and it doesn't sit well with us. Your limited intellect, everybody in the room, I mean, you're smart people, but we're at different places with our, the ceiling of our intellectual abilities. Do you resent your intellectual limitations? Or have you made peace with them? Are you okay with people who are smarter than you because you realize, well, they're different than me, not better than me, but I'm here, they're here. Do you look down on people who are not as smart as you because you've attached value to that? Your social capacity, your personality, I mean, that's something that God made and gave you and wired into you. Do you resent it? Do you see the goodness in it? Is it a glitch you're trying to fix? Is it a gift that you're learning and growing to embrace? Yes, he has to sanctify and refine and clean up our personalities, of course. But at any level, are you embracing that as a good gift or trying to get rid of it? Physical limitations. There's healthy exercise where we are trying to steward the health and the bodies that God gave us to be available for our neighbors. And then there's the trying to exercise our way into a fundamentally different body because we hate the one that we have. We resent it. It's a glitch. And we're trying to overcome that limitation to, to, to become a creator, as it were, and to get out of what we have. Now, at some level, the illusion of, this, of a limitless life, of a, of a person who's been able to break out of these limitations, tear down the fences, and kind of like do everything, be everywhere, be everyone, is, is appealing to us. Like who doesn't want the extra time? Who doesn't want to say yes to three things on a Friday night instead of one thing? Be like, well, I have one body. I can be one place. Or I could commit to three things and go here for a little bit of time. And it's like, see, you guys, I got to go somewhere else. And then I come over here. And then I'm like, I got to go. I got to be over here, too. And we're trying to be omnipresent. But we, that's, that's uh, really appealing to us to get to be everywhere and not have FOMO because I went to everything or to be involved in like three ministries and two churches because you want to be everywhere and get all the information, it's alluring, it's appealing. It catches our hearts. So here's my questions for us. What if, because the conventional wisdom is saying all those limitations I've been talking about, they're bad. And here's some ways you can leave them behind and realize your full potential. What if that's a lie? As plausible as it might sound because it's familiar to you, what if that's a lie? And what if it's not true? And what if this illusion, what if, what if that illusion and not our limitations is what's producing so much stress and pressure and competition between us? 
What if it's our resistance to these limitations that's actually riling us up so much on the insides and not the limitations that we think are so bad and we're trying to get away from? One last question. What if the very limitations that we feel are holding us back are actually the natural habitat you were made for? In other words, what if the you that only gets 24 hours in a day and has to sleep for eight or 10 or 12 of them, depending on where you are in your college journey, what if the you that only has one body and can only say yes to one thing because you can only be in one place, what if the you who has to sometimes drop a class because you don't have the bandwidth to get through it, what if that is the giraffe on the African savanna as it was made to live? And what if the giraffe in captivity at Zoo Atlanta is the one who's trying to shed all of those limitations and break free so you can realize your, your freedom and become free. What if that's actually what's happening? What if it's a good thing that God has made you a creature and not a God? What if it's a good thing that you're not omnipotent, which means you can do and control everything? What if it's okay to be out of control, to not, what if it's okay to not be omniscient? Because God is, and he didn't make you to be, so what if it's okay to not know who you're going to marry, or if you're going to be married, or when you might meet them, and therefore to not have to micromanage that before graduation? What if it's okay? What if that's actually freedom? What if it's okay to be tired because you've studied too much and to go to bed, and you don't have to feel guilty about that? because you're a creature and you're not eternal. Well, I have thrown out about 6,000 rhetorical questions. We should answer a couple of them. What does God say? What does he have to say about all these questions I've just thrown at you? Before we get to the passage on the page, which we will get to and we'll talk about, uh, I want to just remind you of the first page of the Bible. We've been talking about Genesis a lot these, this past month. But let's go back there mentally and just think through, how does God start the story? And how does he describe the story of your Genesis, of your creation? Genesis 1 is making a point, and it's not simply that God created everything. We've been there and talked about that in the past three weeks. It's making that point, but it's also making another very, very clear point that if you go scan that right now, you'll see. And it's this. God hasn't just created everything, he's created a place for everything. He's created a daytime sky for the sun, a nighttime sky for the moon, he's created the sea for, for the fish, he's created land for animals and plants, he's created a place for everything. And when God creates a place for everything, that necessarily comes with limits. So you could clean all that up and just say, God doesn't just create everything, he limits everything. And it's a good thing. It's not a curse, it's a blessing. So for example, God doesn't just make birds in the creation account and then it's like set them free. He fences them in in the sky. And the birds might think, um, gee, I feel so limited that we've got these wings and feathers and like we could only go in the sky like I want to I want to live underwater. I just feel it in my bones I was made for the water. Let's go live in the water. Well, that's a bird. 
who, who sheds that limitation, thinking that freedom is found deep in the water and is going to have um, quite a surprise for the next minute and a half before its life ends. It wasn't made for the water. It was limited to the sky. Conversely with the fish, they're made for the sea. So if all the fish get together and say, like, God's holding back on us. I have a friend who has told me that there's a thing called land out there, and it's amazing. Listen to it, y'all. And he tells them all about what happens on dry ground. And all the fish say, yeah, let's rise up. We're being held back and held down by these limitations. And they swim for the shore, and they beach themselves. And they, they're just like trying to get air and oxygen and saying, man, it's really hard up here. But it is beautiful, just like they said. That's not freedom. That's death. Freedom is found inside creational limits. Just like the kids on the playground. Where does play happen? Inside the fence. Where is play snuffed out? Imagination dies. Anxiety skyrockets. Paralysis is there. Where does that happen? In the Wild West. Where there's no boundaries and no limits and no fences. So counterintuitive. Very counterintuitive. But are you following what I'm saying? And what God is doing here. Job 38 is a place where you see this theme coming up again. It appears elsewhere, but it's an, it's an easy place to quote and just show you where this is happening in Scripture. Uh, God and Job are in this extended dialogue at the end of the book. and. God is beginning to bless his beloved Job, this man who's experienced great suffering. He's blessing him with this refreshing humility. And he's letting Job see who he actually is. But he's doing it through these rather provocative questions to Job. And in this dialogue, God says this to Job. He said, basically saying, Job, where were you when I created in the world? And then he says this in Job 38, the first part, he says, Who shut the sea with doors? When it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling clothes, and set limits for it, and said, This far you shall come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. It's just proving the point with everything that God made, he gave it a place, and he set limits around it, and those limits are good. So the ocean in the ocean, good thing. Last week, the ocean in your living room in a storm surge, bad thing. Fish in the sea, good thing. Fish on land, bad thing. How does this apply to human beings? What are some of the God-given limitations that he has placed on us that are good, that are gifts, not glitches? to be embraced, not overcome. Uh, it, it, we primarily see it in the, in the ways that we, he made us unlike him, different than him. For example, the God who made you is omnipotent. That word omni means all and potent means power. So he's all powerful. He can do everything. He can control every outcome. The one who made you is that way, but you're not that way. And he doesn't expect you to be that way. Hear me. Because some of you think God expects you to control every outcome. You're not omnipotent. And God's not confused that he maybe asked you to be or not. He, 
He has created you weak and vulnerable, not able to control every outcome or every circumstance in your life. That's normal and that's okay. Um, the God who made you is omniscient, which means he, he sees all things as they are. He's never deluded. He's incapable of being duped. He knows all things. He ordains and decrees all things. So what does it mean that, he's, that he is omniscient and you're not? It means it's okay to not know what you need to major in right now or which company you need to make sure you get a job with next year or who your roommates are going to be when you sign leases in January or February because you know a God who is omniscient and already knows that and you are his beloved if you're in Christ. The God who made you is omnipresent. He is in all places in his fullness at all times. It's not like God is in heaven. He is here in his fullness. He's back in your dorm room in his fullness. He's everywhere in his fullness. But you can't be. Because maybe you have a five-foot-tall body or a six-foot-tall body and maybe 150 pounds or 200 pounds or 250 pounds, and there's you, and that's the only you. And you being here tonight in this room means you're not anywhere else on the planet. And that's okay. You can grieve not being at other things maybe you wanted to be at. You can grieve the little sense of FOMO, but also be able to move through it because you're like, I wasn't made to be at two things at one time. I was made to be here. God wants me here. What does it mean that the God who made you is eternal, but you're not? Uh, it means that you're not going to finish all the things you think you've got to finish by the end of your lifetime because your life is like that. So much was happening before I showed up on the scene and so much is going to happen after and God who exists outside of time is not in any hurry, not in any rush and he's not behind. Time is on his side because time is his creation. And if you're his beloved, that has implications for how you relate to time. Uh, you don't have to be that depressed millionaire who says, who dies distraught because they didn't finish building their little empire. Because you have dealt with your mortality and you realize there's only one who lives forever and it's this God who, by the way, if you're attached to him, you live forever with him too. But even after our earthly lifetime over, he continues. He continues building. He continues growing. He continues reaching. He continues his work. G.K. Chesterton is a guy that I'll, I, I love. I, he says so many things I can't think any other way after I read how he said it. He was a Catholic novelist and writer uh, 150 years ago, I think, in England. He was a skeptic at first. He was one of those C.S. Lewis types who didn't believe any of this stuff. And as he's trying to investigate it, becomes a Christian. And he says, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, uh, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. And that last phrase is why I wanted to put this up here. We could, we could talk all night about the law of God. The law of God are fences to let good things run wild, to let sexuality run wild inside the fence God made it for, to let relationships unlock and unleash and run wild inside the fence God made, to let your relationship with work 
unlock and unleash and run wild inside the fence he's made. Your creaturely human limitations, your body, your time, your cognitive abilities, your ability to be places, all of these things are for your good to allow you to flourish and, and unlock in a sense and be a human being in all the sense of what that means. So you could say, in other words, true freedom, true growth happens inside limits, not beyond them. We've said that. So let's move on to the psalm. And before I do, let, let me just let me put negatively what we've been putting positively. If you were made to live inside these limits, if these limits are like the water to the fish, uh, and you were made to thrive in this environment, can't you imagine it will take a big toll on you if you resist these limitations and deny them and try to push them away? Does that make sense? So then why are we so tempted to do that? Because it's so baked into us, by tonight, I'll probably be back in a mentality like we've been talking about. How, why are we so tempted and pulled back into the rat race? Pride is the answer. And this psalm gives us a good, uh, a good picture of what pride looks like as applied to this conversation. Let's look at it. It's so short. I love how short it is. This is a psalm of David. He says, a heart that is lifted up and eyes that are raised too high come from a person who is proudly preoccupied with themselves. Eyes that are haughty or raised too high, set kind of above our pay grade, above our creational state. A heart that is proud come from a person who is concerned with themselves. That's some of the language that's going on in verse one there. David is saying, the fact that my heart is not proud and that my eyes are not haughty, that's arising from, from the fact that I don't concern myself with matters too great for me. He's not talking about, I don't think about math algorithms that I can't figure out. It just, you know, it, it breaks my mind. There's a little verse in Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 5. It's one of those places where it, it's just almost missed in passing. And God is instructing the prophet Jeremiah to say to his scribe this, to tell him and instruct him, should you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. To the proud, what I just said is implausible. It, did, it doesn't compute. To the humble, you get it. Should you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Seeking great things for yourself or being preoccupied with yourself, do you see how it leads to a life of anxiety, a life of, of superiority, a life of pride, a life of pressure? We see it in David's life. And I want to remind you, um, 
let me reverse this psalm. This is a helpful little tool uh, if you're ever trying to figure out what a psalm is really saying. Look at its opposite. Look at its reverse. And it helps kind of release and unlock what it's actually saying. So if you reversed Psalm 131, here's something of what it would sound like. When I occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, my heart gets lifted up. It gets puffed up. And my eyes are raised up too high. And then my soul gets noisy and restless and anxious. Like a screaming, hangry child, I thrash around in the arms of God. I can't sit still with him. I'm so busy. I'm so hurried. I'm so preoccupied with other things, I'm not even aware of his presence, and that's why I'm so scared. feel so alone. When I preoccupy myself with things too great for me, too marvelous for me, my heart gets lifted up, my eyes get raised too high, and then my soul grows noisy and restless. So the question that we end with is, then what do we do? The room isn't filled with the proud and the humble. The room is filled with the proud, who sometimes God is giving the grace and working the grace of humility in us. But what are we to do? Well, first know that there is a path out of that rat race. There is a path to seeing these limitations as good gifts of God and not glitches, of seeing that dependency does not mean deficiency, but is actually a doorway to your true self and the true God. As we finish, consider a few things with me about this psalm. This is written by King David. We have a hard time relating to that term king, President David. He's a president of a country. And he's a king, so it's all on him. This isn't a democracy. You've got Congress and the courts. It's all David. Imagine his inbox. Imagine the notifications that pop up on his phone as he is wrestling with high-caliber things like competitor nations who are waiting for the moment to invade and kill his people and take his land. Economic troubles, crop failure, drought, famine, military threats, the opinions that every person in the kingdom has of your leadership and how you stack up against all the other kings. And then all those backstabbers who are wanting your job and conspiring to get your job. That's a Monday. That's a lot to keep you up at night, right? I mean, compare your life right now to that life. And yet, that man wrote with a clean conscience, my heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not raised up too high. I don't concern myself with great matters or things that are too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. And then David turns to the crowd, to his people, and he says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. The omniscient one, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one, the eternal one, the God who made you. Lift up your hopes from yourself. 
in the rat race of thinking you're supposed to be him and delight in the fact that he didn't want to make you him, but he made you with the limitations and is the creature that you are. David says, like a weaned child, which is very different than a nursing child. A weaned child is one who's been trained by a long period of depending on his mother in the midst of profound limitations and needs. A weaned child for two or three years has learned, I trust this person. Every time I've had a need, every time I've needed a meal, every time I felt like the world is spinning out of control, she's here. She's loved me. She's held me. She's fed me. She's cared for me. So that child has learned to embrace its weakness, its limitations, because it's held in the arms of this mom. And David doesn't say, like a weaned child with a mother. I don't know if you ever got separated from your mom at the store. I did a lot. And I'd grab some lady's leg and look up at her like, mom, and be like, who are you? You're not mom. Run away, distraught, like, where's mom? It's not any mom that'll do. It's got to be your mom. Your mother. That bond. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. The mother's calm has become the baby's calm. The mother's control has become the baby's calm. She's become contagious to her child. You see that? God has made you. Did you know that you growing in awareness of who holds your life, of who made your life, of who governs and rules your life, of who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and eternal, and who is love. Did you know that your awakeness and alertness to that fact will become contagious to you in the sense that it will bring calm to you, bring contentment to you? One of the pieces of homework for you, the application of this, what do you do with this, is sit with this psalm. Sit with it. It's three verses. And let it wash over you and imagine the picture that it's creating of a God who has adopted you, which Galatians 4 said only happens because when the fullness of time came, God sent his son Jesus to give his life for you that you might be adopted as sons and daughters. Imagine this God who has adopted you and so holds you and your future and your tomorrow and your life in his hands that it actually affords you to start to play and take risk and to sleep and to be content and to be calm. That's the secret to contentment is knowing the God who holds you and knowing how you're not like him and aren't supposed to be like him in that way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have just said uh, there has to be this supernatural change for us to be able to sit calmly in your arms. You describe the glitch of sin in our lives as something that has put us at odds with you and in resistance to you. What you came and gave your life and died for 
was to reconcile us to the Father, that he might hold us like this again. So I pray that you would produce calm and peace and contentment in our lives because we are waking up to who you are and it allows us to be okay with who we're not and we're never made to be. I pray this in his name.